I think today's sermon is beautiful. It has some particular relevance for me at the moment as I'm preparing to preach on a fairly similar topic at a pastor's conference that's coming up shortly. Spurgeon's title on this occasion is God Beseeching Sinners by His Ministers. And the sermon was preached on the 27th of July, 1873, by Spurgeon at the Metropolitan Tabernacle in Newington on a Lord's Day morning. My name is Jeremy Walker. This podcast is from the heart of Spurgeon. It's brought to you by the friends at Media Gratii, and you can find them at mediagratii.org. And if you go to the website and find the podcasts page, not only will you find uh, other podcasts that you might enjoy, but you'll be able to sign up for a weekly newsletter where you'll be introduced to uh, not only what we're reading in a given week, but also you'll have an opportunity to zero in on whatever may be this featured sermon. So this week we're reading from 1,123 to 1,129. This featured sermon, this representative sample, is Sermon 1,124. And as I've said, it's God beseeching sinners by his ministers. Spurgeon's text on this occasion is 2 Corinthians 5, 18-21. And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, that God was in Christ reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Spurgeon tells us that the text enforces a particular truth, that man became God's enemy wantonly without the slightest offence given on God's part, But man did not make advances toward reconciliation or express regret because peace was broken. The first overtures for peace are not made by man the offender, but by our aggrieved and offended God. Hence, our text begins with the declaration, All things are of God. Reconciliation of man to his maker is never achieved by man, but is the work of God from first to last, and to God must be all the glory. So then the Lord first finds the messengers of reconciliation by reconciling some men to himself. He chooses his ministers, having called them into a state of reconciliation. Read the verse. All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. The ambassador is sent, not from man to God, but from God to man. Then the matter of the ambassador's message is altogether of God, for it is God who has reconciled the world unto himself through Jesus Christ. He gave his Son to be the atoning sacrifice by the ordained method of substitution. Thus it is he alone who has made a way of access between fallen man and himself. Furthermore, the method by which this atonement is applied to the reconciling of men is also of God, It is not man who beseeches God, but God who beseeches man to be reconciled. It is not man who cries to Christ, but Christ prays man through his ministers, whom he places in his stead to be reconciled to God. 
so that from the first thought of reconciliation, right on through the provision of the atonement, to the conclusion of the solemn league and covenant between the heart and God, all things are of God. You owe it all to God, my brothers. Therefore render thanks unto the Most High, and never attribute to your own wills or to any natural goodness in yourselves your present friendship with the Lord, for all this is of God, who has reconciled you unto himself. And so he moves on. The Spirit of God beseeches and prays men to be reconciled. He deals with us not as with marble or wood, carving and shaping us by mere power, Acting upon the mind of man, he does not act according to the laws of matter, but deals with the mind after the mode in which mind must be dealt with, and therefore his grace operates upon human wills by persuasion, as though God did beseech you by us, and by pleading, we pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. But the means used of the Lord are always such as will ensure that all the glory shall be to him alone. If God beseeches, there can be no honour to man in yielding to the divine persuasion, but great glory is due to him who in infinite condescension prayed to his own creatures and stooped from the loftiness of his glory to beseech his own rebellious subjects to have mercy upon themselves. So Spurgeon is preaching this primarily as a means of driving at the heart and conscience, depending upon the Spirit of God to make my appeals effectual. So, the ambassadors of reconciliation, then the matter of their embassy or the message they have to deliver, and thirdly, the manner in which they are to deliver their message. So, the ambassadors, their embassy, and the manner of their delivery. First of all, the ambassadors of reconciliation themselves were once enemies to God. Yes, beloved, when we beseech you to be reconciled to God, we give to ourselves no airs as though we were very superior to you by nature or had been superior in our former conduct before conversion. No, rather we're bone of your bone and flesh of your flesh. Are you sinful? Such were we. Are you rebellious against God? Such were we. Are your hearts hard? Such were yours. Spurgeon's coming here alongside the congregation. We have a horror of your sin, but not of you, he says. And looking at you as being what we once were, we say to you, brothers by nature, we trust you will yet become brothers by grace, and that the blood of Christ, which has made peace between us and God, may also reconcile you to the great Father in heaven. So these ambassadors were once enemies to God. They speak across, not down, to those to whom they're sent. And those who were once enemies are now reconciled. We have no quarrel now with our Maker. We desire that He should always do what seems Him good, for we are sure that His will is always kindness and wisdom and love toward His people. And now, as God's friends, we speak to you and tell you that He is a good friend and a kind Father, that He is willing to forgive and does forgive most freely all those who come to Him by Jesus Christ. Having been reconciled, we can speak then not theoretically, but experimentally. Then the ambassadors of God were reconciled to God by Jesus Christ in the same way as other sinners. We have nothing else to boast but the very remedy that we hold out to others. We are taught, says Spurgeon, to believe that certain wonderful beings, the bishops and priests, are God's clergy or heritage, and all the rest of us are mere stony laics with a, uh, the, the lay people who ought to do them reverence. 
I suppose the day will come when our fellow countrymen will bow their heads to the dust before a priest and count themselves thrice blessed if they're but spit upon by their reverences. But not thus was it with ministers sent of God in Paul's day. This apostle, this inspired man of himself and others says, All things are of God who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ. Know then, dear hearers, we speak to you as brothers in one common fall, hoping that we may also be brothers in the great salvation. If ever I enter heaven, I shall owe my cleansing to the blood of the Lamb. Not one among you will owe more to the rich, free grace of God than I shall. Nay, there's not one among you who shall bow in humbler, lowlier gratitude than I shall before the throne of infinite mercy, as he remembers his forgiven sin. Spurgeon is is setting up here. He's he's trying to get the his heart hooks into the hearts of those to whom he speaks by emphasizing that the ambassadors are one with the people to whom they are sent. And then, having been so reconciled, they have a message to deliver which has been given to them. We have not to stand in our pulpits and utter original ideas or to invent a gospel for you. No, we are simply the bearers of a message which God would have us deliver to you, and it is at our peril that we add to it or take from it. In these days, there's a great deal said about thinkers, and by thinkers they mean men who startle their people with a fresh heresy every three months. God save us from such thinkers. God would have his ministers be like transparent glass, which lets the rays of the sun pass through unchanged, and not like painted windows which colour all the rays after their own nature. Through infirmity, we all give some amount of colouring to the gospel, but he is the man according to God's order of ministry who longs to let the gospel shine right through him and does not send upon the people anything of his own except the earnestness which the gospel works in him as it streams through him. I can't think really of a a finer, simpler, sweeter illustration of what it means to be a faithful gospel minister, a, a humble understanding that, that yes, there is uh, sadly some taint that comes uh, as the pure gospel comes through any man, but the desire of the faithful preacher is that the only impact that uh, the gospel passing through him would have would be to impart an earnestness and the rest to come through pure and unchanged. Brothers, we have nothing to tell you which we've invented, so that if you're saved by what we say, it will not be due to our skill. We have nothing to tell you but what God commits to us, and therefore God will have all the glory if your souls be saved. And then, finally, under this heading, we add it with all sincerity when we plead with sinners. Our expectation of their being reconciled to God does not lie in our pleading, but in the work of the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Spurgeon says. I never did expect a sinner to be saved because of anything I said or the way in which I said it. I have expected God to bless the word, and I have seen it blessed ten thousand times, glory be to his name but I never reckoned that there was any force in my word or that there could be any potency in the manner in which I spoke the truth. 
No, it's God beseeching you by us who performs the work when he speaks through our lips, makes his own mind to rush like a torrent through our mind and bear our mind away by its force. When he gives the utterance and then by his spirit applies it to the conscience and the soul, then are men reconciled to God, but by no other means. Therefore do we feel a trembling when we speak to you, lest our master should leave us to ourselves and so we should fail to bless you. Therefore do we never come to beseech you for God without first beseeching God for you. We know that you will not be saved except the Spirit of God shall bless the word. Therefore do we ask the prayers of our brothers as well as send to heaven our own that the Lord will be pleased to take of the things of Christ and by the Holy Ghost apply them to your souls. Tells us we've got to be so careful uh, even in, in appreciating the way that God has equipped Spurgeon to be a preacher, that we shouldn't marvel at the style, that we shouldn't be impressed by the vocabulary, that we shouldn't be awed by the eloquence, but rather we should marvel at two things. First, that God gave this man such utterance, and secondly, that he did so in order that he might bless. Spurgeon says, "'It is not my words that have secured any favour. It is the blessing of God upon my words. And that's an encouragement for those who preach that God can both give us the words to speak and a blessing upon them. So then, the ambassadors of God are the brothers of the people to whom they are sent. Though I might in some respects magnify our office, for it is no small thing to be an ambassador for God, admits Spurgeon. Yet, after all, we are as nothing in the matter. We cannot stand between you and God to take any share of praise. We preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord. We direct you to the Lord and the Lord alone, for all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. So much then for the ambassadors. The second point is the subject matter of our message that reconciliation is only to be obtained toward God on the ground of substitution. You cannot reconcile yourself to God by weeping and lamentation on account of your past sins. There's no efficacy in regret to blot out transgression. You cannot reconcile yourselves to God by any future arduous service. All that you can do is already due to God. You will have done no more than you ought to have done if you should be perfect all the rest of your days. Neither can you be reconciled to God by any ceremony of man's invention or even of God's ordaining. He has not made rites and outward forms to be the way of grace. And if you choose them, God will not choose you. So then, this the plan of reconciliation. Here's Spurgeon's gospel summary. Men were all lost and condemned, for there was no difference between the Jew and the Greek. They all lay under condemnation. Then Jesus came into the world, the eternal Son of God, and he took upon himself our manhood in all its feebleness, that he might be our brother. And here he lived for thirty years and more in poverty, obscurity, sorrow and persecution until at last he died. In his death he bore the whole burden of human sin. God laid upon him the iniquity of his people, and on the cross Jesus suffered what his people ought to have suffered. What God's justice must have inflicted upon man for sin, he inflicted upon Christ. 
He laid the whole weight of his wrath upon Jesus, and now this day whosoever will come to God by the way of the cross may come. Whosoever will hide himself in the wounds of Jesus shall be free from the arrows of vengeance. Whosoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. He that believes in him is not condemned. Look unto me and be ye saved. All ye ends of the earth is the voice of the cross from Calvary, and a true voice it is, and whosoever heedeth it shall find eternal life. Reconciliation by the blood, by the substitutionary sacrifice of the infinite Son of God, this is the message of our ministry. If we do not testify this, it were better for us that we had never been born. If we do not preach this constantly and incessantly, we have missed our main topic. We have failed in the great commission which our Master sent us to execute. We do declare it this day in the name of the eternal God. O oh, sinners, there is forgiveness through the blood of Jesus. There is mercy, grace, pardon, heaven for as many as believe in Jesus, the great substitute for sin. But there is no other mode of reconciliation under heaven. So then, this is the message. And this reconciliation made by Christ through his substitution was not apart from God, but that God was in Christ. You must never fall into the idea that God is revengeful and angry and that the death of Jesus Christ, his son, was necessary to pacify the father. Beloved, you know better than this. You know that God was love before Jesus died, always love, always full of grace and truth towards his people. The fact is that the substitution made on Calvary was a substitution provided by God's love, for the Lord himself gave his own son to die as a manifestation of love as well as a vindication of justice. God was in Christ. God came on earth to reconcile men. God made the atonement for us. God was not made to love us by the death of his son, but because he loved us and had mercy on us. Therefore he gave his son Jesus, that the dishonor done to his law might be wiped out, that the difficulty which stood in the way of his mercy might be removed, that so he might be just, and yet the justifier of the ungodly. So look at the cross in this light, O sinner, and I trust it may reconcile you to God. It is by that bloody sweat, that crown of thorns, that shame and suffering, it is by those five dear wounds, those agonies extreme, that God has removed all hindrance to your reconciliation. God himself has given to you his Son, and he suffered in his Son that you might be reconciled to himself. It is not Jesus, a stranger, who hangs there to gratify the Father's vengeance. God forbid. It is God who, in one of his divine persons, bears the penalty which the inflexible laws of right and justice demanded of sinful men. So, it is by substitution. It is not apart from God. And the consequence of God's having reconciled the world to himself in Jesus Christ he is now able to deal with sinners as if they had never sinned. He treats sinners as if their sins were not theirs. Substitution is a plan arranged by wisdom for the joint display of justice and mercy, and by its means the Lord comes near to us to commune with us and give us countless blessings. For having absolved and pardoned us, he blesses us as if we'd never sinned. And more, even, God treats poor sinners reconciled to him as if they were full of good works. What a grand expression in the text. He makes us righteous through the righteousness of Jesus. Nay, not only makes us righteous, but righteousness. 
Nay, that's not all. He makes us the righteousness of God. That's higher than the righteousness of Adam in the garden. It's more divinely perfect than angelic perfection. He makes the guilty sinner when he believes in Jesus to be the righteousness of God in him. Never did lips have a sweeter message to deliver than mine, and I murmur not if my speech should feel seem feeble this morning, and if I cannot garnish my message with the flowers of oratory, God forbid I should try to do so. To you who are guilty, there was never a more important message delivered at any time, and having heard it, I charge it on your conscience that you should value it and think it over, I and accept it. You can almost hear Spurgeon as he as he soars to heights of pleading, uh, suddenly as it almost step down and take his congregation by the coat and say, I'm, I'm speaking to you. I'm not trying to dress this up. I wouldn't if I dared, but, but listen to what I'm saying on behalf of God. Moreover, he says, we're bidden to tell man that the atonement of Christ is not confined to the Jew, that God has not reconciled the Jewish nation to himself, but the world. The atonement was not made for a class, but for all classes, not for the old exclusively, but for the young, not for the young only, but for the old as well. This is such an atonement made by Christ upon the cross that it presents a warrant for every sinner born of woman to come to God and say, Lord, forgive me, for Christ has died. When we preach the gospel, it is in no stinted terms, looking about and thinking that perhaps there might be half a dozen in the building to whom the gospel might honestly be spoken. But looking every man in the face, we preach reconciliation by Jesus Christ to him, to him and point him to the atoning blood. And then again, with regard to this message, that there's nothing whatever needed in order to their reconciliation and acceptance with God, except what Christ has already worked out for sinners. There's the propitiation. And if you say in your heart, my God, I take it, you are reconciled to God by the death of his son. Oh, gad not abroad to heap together your vanities, for they cannot appease him. Bring none of your vain oblations to him, your empty sacrifices. The incense of your self-righteousness will be an abomination to him. Come as you are, defiled and filthy, polluted and wretched, and put your trust in what he's done in the person of his only begotten son, and you are reconciled unto God. This is the gospel message with which we are sent. And now, thirdly, and very earnestly, and again, this is one of those points where you, you might say, now you're going to be earnest? What were you before? Well, very earnest, as I speak upon the manner in which this message is to be delivered. It is to be delivered by beseeching men and praying to men, pleading with men, he means. To inform the intellect is not the minister's sole work. We are to proclaim, but we are to do far more. We are to beseech and to pray, to plead. We are not merely to convince the intellect, but to beseech the heart. Neither are we alone to warn and threaten, though that has its place, yet it's not to be our main work. We are to beseech. Oh, to be taught how to beseech men, how to plead with them. I think every preacher hearing these sorts of words and this kind of preaching says, Oh, God, help me to be a reasoner, a persuader, a beseecher, a pleader with men. 
God forbid that we should fall into the error of those who think beseeching and praying to be unlawful. It is the Christly principle which leads God's ministers to do so. It's the main part of a minister's business, and he who neglects it will have to answer for it before God's great bar. The text goes on to say that we're to beseech men as though God did beseech them. What does that sound like? Read one of the Lord's beseechings in the first chapter of Isaiah, how imploring it is. He says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. For several verses the Lord expostulates and then pleads, Come now and let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Oh, the tenderness of that invitation to reason together. First there was a burst of righteous indignation to arouse the mind, and then came the voice of tenderest pity to allure the heart. What matchless pleading. If this is how ministers are to beseech, we have a high standard set before us. Or or where else shall we look? How about Hosea 11 and verse 8? How shall I give you up, Ephraim? How shall I deliver you, Israel? How shall I make you as Adman? How set you as Zeboim? My heart is turned within me. My repentings are kindled together. Oh, how God beseeches men, and he means his ministers to beseech them in the same way, with weeping tenderness and melting pathos, if perhaps the stony heart may be softened and the iron sinew be bowed. Perhaps some strong doctrine brother says, I don't like this, speaking primarily of the hyper-Calvinist. Spurgeon says, I'm not that bothered to give you an answer. If the Lord appoints it, you should approve it. And if you don't, you're wrong. But the scripture's not. If God beseeches and bids me beseech as he does, I will do it. And though I be counted vile for it by you, then so must it be. Besides, it's no derogation for God to beseech his creatures. You say we make God beg to his creatures. Assuredly, that's how the Lord represents himself. All day long have I stretched out my hands to a disobedient and gainsaying generation. Remember then these entreaties of God in which the Lord stoops to our littleness, even when they do not prevail with man, to affect the divine purpose mysteriously. They're a savour of death unto death, wherever they are not a savour of life unto life. But then, blessed be God, in thousands of cases, they are the means by which his power works on men's hearts. They do bring men to be reconciled to him. But, says Spurgeon, I have to pass on, for our text, speaking of the manner of ministers, tells us that we are to pray souls in Christ's stead. That is to say, we are to preach as if Christ were preaching. Oh, what a model for the minister. And again, let me just give you Spurgeon. We pray you in Christ's stead. He says, I am to say to you who are not reconciled to God, be reconciled to him. And I am to say it as if Jesus said it. That would not be in a light or trifling manner. That would not be in a cold official style. That would be with melting eyes and burning heart. How was Jesus Christ accustomed to implore men? Why, sometimes he prayed them, that is, he pleaded with them, by setting before them the evil of their ways. For which of these works do you stone me, says he? And so I am to inquire, for which of God's works are you his enemy? Are you his enemy because he keeps you in life? Because he's raised you from the bed of sickness? Are you his enemy because he gives you your bread and your water? Are you his enemy because he sends you the gospel? For which of these works do you hate him? Oh, wanton malice to be at enmity with the infinitely good God. Sometimes Christ would plead with men on account of the uselessness of their rebellion. 
What king, he says, will go to make war with another king without first sitting down to see whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him that comes against him with 20,000? Why will you be God's enemy when you cannot win the battle? The towel may sooner contend with the flame or the wax with the fire than you with God. Oh, why then are you not reconciled to him? Sometimes Jesus pleaded with men on account of the result of their sin, as he did when he stood on the brow of the hill and looked down on Jerusalem and said, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those which are sent unto you, how often would I have gathered your children together, even as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate." Remember that wonderful chapter in Matthew where he speaks of his coming with all the holy angels and dividing the sheep from the goats? Remember the passages where he treats of the virgins who had no oil in their vessels with their lamps? Whoever puts the doctrine of hell into the background, Jesus never did. It is thought in these days that we'd better not say much concerning the terrors of the law, but so thought not the Christ of Galilee. His ministry was full of the honest warning which proves a tender heart. Oh, sinners, you'll be lost indeed unless you lay hold on Christ, and to be lost is something unutterably terrible. Oh, the wrath to come, the wrath to come, who among you will endure the devouring fires, who will dwell in everlasting burnings? Thus the Saviour invited, thus he besought men, and so are we to beseech them. And then you know in what style Jesus pleaded the love of God. I do not say he put it into words that I can quote, But recollect the parable of the prodigal son. When he was yet a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. Was not that an eloquent discourse upon the abounding mercy of the great father in heaven? And did not Jesus then tell how willingly God receives the penitent and how gladly he puts away every sin? And oh, how he implored man to be reconciled in such sweet words as these. Come unto me, all you that labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And what a word was that when he said, Him that comes to me I will by no means cast out. Never such a pleader as Jesus. His birth among men and dwelling here on earth was a plea. His actions were pleas. His death was the master plea. Each groan seemed to say, Man, be reconciled to God. And his last expiring cry of, It is finished. What was it but saying, I have put away everything that needs separate a sinner and his God. Be reconciled to God was the true meaning of that consummatum est with which he closed his agony. Once more, it's taught us in the text, says Spurgeon, that the duty of the true minister is to bring this matter home and press it. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. It comes to this with you, my friend. God says to you this morning, throw down your weapons. Why do you contend with your maker? What have I done that you should despise me? Poor creature that I made, what have I done that you should hate me? I breathed into your nostrils your breath. What have I done that you should spend it in speaking against me? That throbbing heart of thine, I gave it every pulse. What have I done that you should forget me, that my day should be a weariness and my worship should be an an abhorrence to you? I've raised you from the bed of sickness. I've given you many comforts. I spared your child when she was sick. I've prospered your efforts in business. I've done a thousand things for you. Do I deserve to be forgotten? 
Is it right that your heart should be warm to your wife and child and cold to me? My God, my soul is in sympathy with you, says Spurgeon, that you should be forgotten of your creatures. And perhaps that's the heartbeat of Spurgeon's gospel favour. My soul is in sympathy with God that you should be so forgotten by your creatures. So, says Spurgeon, throw down your weapons, accept the Lord Jesus, kiss the Son lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. There's life in a look at the crucified one. Jesus asks no hard thing of you. God, your Father, does not ask you to do impossibilities or to prepare yourself by a long round of performances. His command is most simple and plain. Trust in Jesus and you shall be saved. And being saved, you shall love your God and then all war between you and God will be over. God, the Eternal One, will bend from heaven to embrace his once erring child and you shall feel the kisses of his love while in your heart there shall be music and dancing and joy and feasting because you've come back to God. I don't know how to say more, nor how to plead more strongly. I would, God, that he would beseech you, and that Jesus Christ would pray you, and that the Spirit of God would sweetly touch the secret springs of your will, that you might say, I yield, by sovereign grace subdued, who can resist its charms, and throw myself, by love pursued, into my Saviour's arms. God be thanked for it. Amen. If you're a preacher... I hope that you're saying with me, God have mercy upon us that we have not so preached and God grant that by his spirit we may begin to preach as if we truly spoke on behalf of a reconciling God and behalf of his beloved son Jesus Christ to sinners that they might be saved. And I hope you'll pray that you might hear such messages and that the gospel would ever delight you. And if you have yet to be converted, May these very words be those which bring you to God for salvation. And insofar as any of us as God's people have the privilege and the opportunity of making the Lord Christ known, may we learn to beseech sinners in in God's place that they might be reconciled to him. The the sermon as a whole is, is wonderful. It's a description and a demonstration all in one building into a grand appeal to sinners. How can we not be touched by these things? I hope you'll ponder this sermon long and well. Until next week, when, God willing, we come back for Sermon 1131 on clearing the road to heaven. Uh, Perhaps in some senses a a related theme, a slightly different approach Uh, But do join with us. We're reading sermons 1130 to 1136, and that featured sermon again, 1131, Clearing the Road to Heaven from Isaiah 62. I trust that you'll join with us and that God will bless you until then.